What's up, everybody? I hope you're doing well today. Uh, this is Rafael Garcia back for episode 133 of the MMA Ratings Podcast. I'm here with Shawan Hughes on Thursday, August 29th. Sir, the summer is almost over, man. How, how have you spent your time? Have you made the most of it? Yeah, I haven't had too much fun. I've been training kids in basketball and watching film for fighters. So it hasn't been hasn't been too relaxing, but it's it's been fun. Going to my kids' tournaments is always fun. Kind of fun watching them compete. It's always kind of a thrill. True, true. I, I know you're a super dad out there, so I'm going to uh, definitely allow that answer. My summer has been, you know, it's been it's been something. Um, yeah, that's pretty much the only way I can describe it without uh, going too deep. But yeah, man, it, it, it's, it's been something. <laughs> had that kind of fun. He can't even he can't even tell us what's the most fun you had. I, I can't discuss that on live ways, live yeah, airways. Definitely, we definitely can't talk about that. Um, live so but what we can talk about is professional mma and we got quite a bit to talk about this week um well actually not a whole lot especially not on the fight scene i really only only want to talk about one fight from this weekend but we got some news pieces we're going to talk about we shouldn't be on for a long show today but as always length doesn't necessarily determine quality because we expect to bring you quality either way so let's go ahead and jump into it, Schwan, because we I want to hit some of these news pieces and then give you an opportunity to review or preview this weekend's title fight between Rayleigh Zhang and Jessica Andrade. But before we get to that, let's talk about some of these news pieces from this week. And the first one that jumped out to me was Anthony Johnson, former two-time, I think he challenged for the UFC title twice, uh, yep. is, back, is planning to make a comeback to MMA in 2020. This is in light of more news about his domestic violence background and those issues that have been popping up since maybe back to 2005. I think that's when some of the earliest accounts were um, on record. But it looks like uh, Rumble is coming back to MMA and he's planning on fighting at heavyweight. What are your thoughts about that? And when you think about Anthony Rumble Johnson, where was his legacy before he retired? And do you think he has the potential to build upon that if he returns um anthony johnson really was a guy who's been known as a underachiever of sorts i mean he when he fought at welterweight he was one of the biggest most athletically gifted welterweights and due to the fact that he probably shouldn't have been fighting in that weight class and the gas issues that came with the results of the hard cut he never achieved his true greatness at welterweight he was never more than maybe a top 10 maybe a top 10 kind of guy he never got the big wins he needed he never dominated consistently the way he needed to be a, a real title contender. Um, then he moved up to middleweight. That didn't work out. He moved to light heavyweight. And in light heavyweight, he did a lot of work. He had a lot of quality, high-level wins. But when you, consider how, when you consider how thin the light heavyweight division is, the fact that he could never really close the show and win a title also makes you, makes you wonder what could he have been had he maybe moved up at an earlier stage, maybe had taken care of his body at an earlier stage, and maybe had been forced to fight at a bigger weight class where he would have to round out his skills instead of depending on that one-punch power or those quick moments of explosive offense to essentially win him fights. So that, that's, been, that's been his his history as a fighter. He has big moments where he counters with big kicks, big knees, big punches, and he essentially wins fights off of those three to five explosions he has a fight. And he'd been able to get by with that so long that he really hadn't developed an all-round game as far as being able to hang in extended wrestling exchanges, 
being able to hang in extended grappling exchanges. And when guys got him in extended exchanges, his whole game fell apart. And you saw it happen routinely against the elite level fighters in every weight class. So he's a great, he's one of the great athletic talents and probably mixed martial arts and definitely UFC, maybe mixed martial arts. But he's also one of the guys who never reached the full level of those athletic talents and that physical ability. He, he never won the title. He was always basically number two in the division. In the case of light heavyweight, he was number two to the number two in light heavyweight, losing to Daniel Cormier both times in fairly one-sided fights. He'd have like a brief moment of success. And then essentially, after Daniel didn't fold, he lost the fight. And um, that's pretty much how his, the entirety of his career went. In tough fights where he was forced to have to fight back and grind through things, he essentially lost. So I'd say a great talent, a dangerous fighter, but a fighter who never really mat whose whose resume never really matched his actual talent and ability. Something that always stood out to me about Rumble, you kind of mentioned that, was what could he have been if he would have made that move up a weight class sooner in his career? I mean, he was a threat at every weight class that he fought at. I mean. He was in a position to challenge for the welterweight title, but he lost that out to uh, Josh Koscheck. He was beating Vitor Belfort, but the weight issues and the shoddy refereeing cost him that fight, which basically cost him his first UFC run. Um, he got the 205. I think he fought for the title twice at 205, both against Daniel Cormier. I mean, I remember when he starched uh, Alexander Gustafsson, and that basically even though everyone knew he had big punching power and that he was a scary hitter, that right there caused everyone to kind of take a step back and look at him differently. He is someone who, I don't want to say could have been so much more, but was definitely something to watch. And I am interested in his return. I don't think he is going to be able to go on a run like some people think he'll be be able to go on a run, but he's definitely... He's definitely an attraction, and I believe that the UFC will waste no time in bringing him back in and and figuring out a place for him to get some big fights. I think he has a chance at heavyweight. As you know, heavyweight's almost as thin as light heavyweight as far as skill-wise and really multidimensional fighters. You got guys who wrestle strictly and can strike competently, guys who can strike pretty well and wrestle competently. The skill set isn't like it was where where you have really balanced guys and really seasoned guys and really experienced guys. Heavyweight has the same problem that light heavyweight has. You have a bunch of underdeveloped, under-seasoned fighters who get by on physical tools, and then the minute they face a veteran who knows some of the veteran tricks, has some veteran poise, uh, has a little bit better sense of timing and distance management, they get they get tuned up. We've been watching Glover Teixeira, light heavyweight, knock guys off for years, and even Andrei Arflovsky, even in the fights he's lost against these young up-and-coming heavyweights, a lot of them haven't looked really great against him. In fact, the last two guys who beat, last two young guys who beat Andre, they didn't look spectacular. They like won close contested fights with a guy who's supposed to be easy to knock out, yet none of these young guys are knocking him out. A guy who's supposed to be easy to wrestle, yet none of these guys are out wrestling him. So I think Anthony Johnson, he's, he'd be one of the better athletes at, at heavyweight. He's still going to be one of the faster and quick twitch guys at heavyweight. I don't, I don't know how he carries the weight, but just off of athleticism and physical power and his, his, the fact that he's a counterfighter who's got a pretty good array of kicks and punches, he should be able to do – I, I can see him going on a small run. I can see him putting two or three wins together. He's got experience. He's fought world-class opposition, and he's probably one of the top three or four athletes at heavyweight right now.
So I could see him putting some wins together. I, I don't know how far he goes. I'm not saying he beat the Stipe. I'm not saying he beats Nganu. I'm not going to say he doesn't have a chance, just off the fact that he's so athletic and he hits so hard. So who do you put him up against first? First fight back, let's say he signs with the UFC. Who do you throw him in there with first? Uh, you probably would. Do you throw him nah. in there with um, Greg Hardy? Who do you throw him in there with first? Uh, I don't know about Greg Hardy. I think he knows Greg Hardy. Uh, maybe nah, somebody like, like maybe, maybe they do train train together. Maybe somebody like a junior is Junior Albini still in there? Yeah, yes, I think so. Like, like a Junior Albini or who's that? Who I forgot that guy, the Samoan guy who lost to uh the pretty boy. Uh, he he trains with Mark the uh, Mark uh, Hunt. He I forgot he drinks out of the shoe. I forgot That's, his name. Uh, but Tai Tuivasa. Yeah, him, Tai Tuivasa, uh, Junior Albini, somebody who's a legitimate heavyweight with some size, who's got some wins or, or been some competitive rounds, somebody where he can test the waters with, and somebody who, if they beat him, won't won't beat him in a manner that'll it'll take the, the shine off of him. Because if he gets knocked out or submitted easily, that's bad look. If he loses a decision, people can say, well, he was getting adjusted to the weight, fighting bigger opponents. You can spin it. But those guys have just enough skill and just enough success to make them interesting, but they're just flawed enough where he should be able to get them out of there fairly quick with his style. Both guys are stand-up kind of guys, not great wrestlers, terrible defense, not really great athletes, not really good defensively. That, and, and that'll kind of get him acclimated. If he's smart, he doesn't want to jump right to the top. It, that, that wouldn't be a good idea. Derek Lewis, little dangerous. Francis Ngannou, little dangerous. He's not getting to Stipe. He wants to. He, he wants to fight it smart. Walt Harris, I wouldn't suggest. Somebody like Junior Albini, tied to Avasa, someone like that. Someone who'll give him the fight that he wants. So something that's interesting to me is you mentioned uh, a guy jumping right to the top. We're going to segue over to our next story, where we see Mickey Gall is facing off against Carlos Condit, and everyone's response to this matchup has been pretty interesting. It, it kind of caught me off guard the way everyone responded to this match because now we have a situation where Gall, who isn't someone who should stand out as a big um as a big name. He's not someone that's easily that's not ranked at all. He's facing off against a former interim cha- champion, uh, a former title uh contender and a lot of people are like, whoa, what did Mickey Gall do to piss some, piss somebody off in UFC uh, matchmaking, and how did this fight get booked? Because now we have a situation where a lot of people are looking at this should be an easy fight for Kanye to win. But I am on the other hand. I am not so quick to write off Mickey Gall in this situation, and it's not more about what Mickey has done, but my apprehension to write him off in this fight is more about what Carlos Condit has not done since returning to the cage. What are your thoughts about this fight here? Because I think we could be in for a surprise when Mickey Gall picks up a, picks up a big, big win and really like kind of supplants the old dog, um, for lack of a better term. Well, with me, if Mickey Gall beats College Condit, that's not really a shock to me, to be honest. Because Carlos, at one point, if you would have made this fight, I could probably put you up on charges for murder, attempted murder, because the fight would be so uneven, given the experience levels and the fact that Gall is just an awful striker. But now, Carlos Condit, A, does not take a shot as well as he used to. 
he's a little gun shy when he gets hit. B, he was never a high-end athlete. And C, he seems to go get into exclusively grappling-based type fights. And that's the kind of fight, that's the only kind of fight Mickey Gall is going to kind of win. And Gall's still a big, strong, fairly inexperienced welterweight. And if Carlos Conant was a better wrestler, like an offensive wrestler with some more control, I'd say it was going to be an automatic win for Condit. But Condit still is a terrible wrestler. He's not great at getting back up, and he's often forced to work from the guard and work submissions from the bottom. And if that's what he's going to do against Gall, I can see Gall essentially winning a decision. I mean, this is the kind. This is the best case scenario for Carlos Condit, a guy who's not a big hitter, a guy who's not a very seasoned striker, who's not a very seasoned fighter, and a guy who's going to exclusively come to kind of grapple him. Uh, Condit's a good enough grappler, but his wrestling is just so bad. It's just so bad, and he gives up position so much. I can see Gall getting a decision. If Gall finished him, that'd be a fairly big statement. That'd be a fairly big statement. But I can see Gall getting a decision, maybe uh, just ground and pound and controlling him to a decision. I can see Gall getting finished and beaten too. But if he's got a chance to win this, I, I think it's going to be by decision, by controlling position and threatening with submissions. So what's interesting about this is I, I decided to crack open Mickey, uh, not Mickey Gall, excuse me, Carlos Condon's record. He's two and eight in his last ten fights going back to 2012. I didn't realize they had gotten that bad. Uh, he last... the guys who are much better than Mickey Gall. Let's not forget that. Let's not forget that. I mean, he's lost. Uh, he lost to Michael Ch- uh, Chiesa back in December. Alex Oliveira in April 2018. Neil Magny before that. Damian Maya, Robbie Lawler. And then Tyron Woodley back in UFC 171. That was that knee injury. Before that, Johnny Hendricks. And then uh, George St. Pierre. He's beaten Martin Ketman and Thiago Alves since. But, I mean, that's that's pretty interesting to me, looking at that list. I mean, you compare it to Mickey Gall, put it like this. If Carlos Condit in his last 10 fights is 2-8, two and, two and eight, Mickey Gall's professional record is 6-2. and two. So that really yeah. that, that that really tells you like some comparison there. Um, Mickey well, Gall yeah. last fought in August of this year, where he got a um, decision victory over Salim to to Ahari. I mean, he hasn't. If you look at his record, I mean, you could easily argue that either Sage Northcutt or CM Punk are is his is his biggest win. Yeah, the fact that you know the funny thing is beating a guy who's two and eight in his last ten fights be the biggest win on Mickey Gall's record. That that tells you a little bit about how good Mickey Gall is and how he, he's perceived by most opponents, by the UFC and by the MMA world at large. I mean, I know he's not a name per se, but Mickey Gall is more of a name than he is a legitimate fighter. Let's just be straight up about that. If Northcutt could wrestle, could really wrestle worth a damn or had to, had defensive wrestling, he would have beaten... Gall, he just couldn't wrestle him on any level. He couldn't reverse, couldn't get up, couldn't hit scrambles to get back to get back to his feet. Against a guy who could wrestle and a guy who had some conditioning and could put some muscle on him, I mean, a shot-worn Diego, Ch- Diego Sanchez, I mean, beat him from pillar to post. Diego Sanchez handled him and did so easily. So Gall isn't as good as he thinks he is, and he isn't as good as he's been, as his name may say that he is. He's still a young fighter who got an opportunity because he fought CM Punk. And a lot of the wins he's had has been against guys who were fairly one-dimensional or just fairly flawed fighters. In this case, at this stage, Carlos Condit does not have the durability or the energy to over overshadow the flaws he had, which is his wrestling 
and the durability which he used to have that he no longer has. It seems like guys who can't even hit now are shaking him up. That's that's what gives me the confidence to pick Mickey Gall because if all things are even and Carlos Condit is half the fighter he used to be, he knocks Gall out. He knocks him out. He submits him. But Condit just hasn't looked nearly as explosive or durable or aggressive as he had in this second incantation of his career, the UFC. So let me ask you this. Is this a loser leaves town fight? Do you think the uh, person who, who doesn't get their hand raises on their way out of, out of the UFC? I could, I could see, I could see Carlos being out. I mean, he's two and eight. He's going down the tail end of his fight. If he can't beat Mickey Gall, what is he really doing in there? I mean, Oliver is not a bad loss. Magny's not a bad loss. Kisei is not a bad loss. These people aren't bad losses. Losing to Mickey Gall, for all intents and purposes, should essentially eliminate him as even a middling fighter in the welterweight division. So if Mickey Gall loses, that's nothing. That's, they're not getting rid of him. He's a young guy. He can talk. He's got a little bit of a fan base and a name. They can just have him fight another unseasoned guy or a lower-level guy and, and, and build him back up, see if they can build him back up. But for Carlos, Carlos Condit, yeah, I can see this being his last fight in the UFC if he loses. I can see being the last fight in the UFC if he wins. He might win and say, you know what? Want to go out on a win? Leave my gloves in the cage, and I'm out. I didn't think about that. That's also true there. Um, let's move on to our next item here where we have, and it's not really an item. I just want to kind of make everyone aware. So if you haven't been watching the the real MMA news per se, the UFA antitrust um, lawsuit has been going on this week and it's been going on, I think, out in Las Vegas. And there's some interesting news bites that come, that come out of it. I am going to do a full story on this uh, probably... Later on in the week, I got to take some time over the weekend to kind of review everything. But one of the bigger bits of news that came out was what the fighters, the percentage of um, uh, the, the percentage that the fighters are being paid out of the revenue from the event. And what's interesting is that, for example, John Nash over at Bloody Elbow has broken out what what percentage of, of revenue fighters have been paid going all the way back to 2001. Schwan, there's a lot of background noise. Can you, um, uh, there's a lot of background noise. So going back to th- 2001, he looks at um, fighter compensation as a percentage of UFC revenue. So if you look at these numbers, in 2004, for example, fighters were paid 24% of UFC revenue. It goes up to as high as 25% in 2007. And then it starts to decline a little bit. It goes down to 20% in 2008, 2001, excuse me, 2009, it was at 21%. 2010, it was at 22%. 2011, it goes down to 18. 2012, it stays at 18. Then um, we look back, uh, for example, in 2015, uh, fighters got 19% of, were paid 19% of the revenue from the UFC, which equates to about $113 million. 2016 is about 20%. So now, so after 2015, where the fighters got the 19%, the UFC began projecting that they believe they'll reach 20% of fighter revenue, uh, or of all revenue will get paid out to fighters. But the average, the average sits around 16 to 19% of revenue. Now, if you look at that number and you compare that to what other professional athletes make, it's a drop in the bucket, a massive drop in the bucket. And it's a hard one-to-one comparison because obviously 
you know, the NBA, NFL, Major League Baseball, they have their players' associations. Tennis has, has uh, an association, so does baseball. Soccer has governing bodies as well. Uh, MMA doesn't. And you see these type of numbers and you wonder, is this going to be a starting point for fighters to kind of sit back and say, you know what, we need to look at this? Or is this is going to be a footnote where it's like, hey, these numbers are being flashed in front of you. You see the UFC making big deals with Fox. You see the UFC making big deals with Endeavor. You see the UFC doing X, Y, and Z, and you're getting a smaller and smaller portion of the um, of, of the revenue. And I don't think fighters are going to do anything about it. What are your thoughts about this? Well, I think when you started seeing that improvement, when you see that when you saw that improve, when you saw the they used to get paid more earlier. If I recall correctly, that was when the UFC started really picking up steam. But like. I think 2010 and all that, late in the early 2010s and stuff, I think that was still in Chuck Liddell's fairly big heyday or coming towards the end of it when it was getting super popular and everybody was flooding to want to be a mixed martial artist and fighting the UFC. As the UFC got more popular, they, in my opinion, they, had to pay, they, they, they didn't have to pay as much because everybody wanted to be a part of it. Remember, there were guys, you'd hear from other organizations, that people were turning down fights where they would make 16000 just to show just to attempt to make 16,000, eight to win, eight to show, eight to win in the UFC, because the UFC was the best of the best. And you get to compete against the best. And you can say, I fought in the UFC. There were guys turning down better deals in smaller organizations to fight in the UFC because the UFC was considered the best. Guys admitted that. You know, I could have made such and such. I was making this much on the regional with sponsorships, but I came to the UFC because I, I wanted to fight the best. Whatever sense that makes. I get the competitive spirit of it, but most of these people have families. If not, they have wives, people they are responsible for. And I don't understand how you you fight the best and then get paid like you're fighting the worst. But I think got people were act I know I know for a fact. I'm not even gonna say I think I know people from major camps who are taking crappy deals from the UFC and taking short notice fights on crappy deals just so they could get into the UFC. So that's part of it. The name, the name, the the popularity of being in it. Second of all, the UFC, the difference with MMA is in professional sports, you make a certain amount of money regardless, whether you're a good team or a bad team, but you don't maximize the money unless your team specifically is winning or so has won so much and is so popular that they just have a huge fan base. The Cowboys, whether they're winning or losing, have a huge fan base. They don't have to win to get attention, but somebody like... Uh, Seattle Seahawks, maybe they have to win. Maybe the Minnesota Vikings have to win. But in the UFC, it doesn't matter which fighter wins. The UFC has branded itself as the star of the show. The star of the show isn't the fighters. It's the UFC, even though the fighters help make the UFC what it is. So whether A fighter wins or A fighter loses, B fighter wins, B fighter loses, the fact of the matter, at the end of it, the UFC always makes its money. So that's the advantage they have over every other sport. The Pittsburgh Steelers can't make as much money as they want to make if they're not winning. As much money as the Dallas Cowboys make when they're losing, they'd make even more if they made it to a Super Bowl. How much they win directly impacts the bottom line. They just make enough money where it doesn't impact it as much. But the UFC, regardless of who's winning or who's losing or which camp is the best or which camp isn't worse or which guy's a wife feeder and which guy's a wife cheater, doesn't matter. At the end of the day, the UFC always wins, and that's the advantage they have over every single sport. And that, last of all, we've already discussed this, these fighters don't care about each other. They only care until the UFC breaks them off. Once they get broken off, all those complaints start disappearing, all those fighters' unions start disappearing, all that tough talk to Dana White, 
all start disappearing as soon as they get their money. And the, so the fighters are never on the same team anyway. So there's no way they can ever force, force the UFC's hand. The UFC's on the same page. The fighters on a completely different one. That's why the UFC always has the advantage, because the fighters always are trying to one-up each other or sabotage one another. Always. Every single chance they can. They always undercut each other. And then two months later, they're crying about the same thing the other fighter, the fighter that they called a coward and a whiner, was complaining about. It, it's, it's so predictable. It's embarrassing. It's funny because it kind of <laughs> ties into the people taking shots at Paige Van Zant for saying that she gets paid more for her endorsement deals and posting on Instagram than she does for fighting in the UFC. And some women are kind of are trying to take shots at her, trying to get her attention because they know she is the path to attention. And it kind of is, it almost is like a circular conversation. They're taking shots at Paige Van Zant because she's saying that she makes more money doing X instead of actually fighting. And they're trying to incite her to fight them so they can maybe siphon off some of her popularity. It's a very comical and circular conversation that is unfortunate to see. You know, I'm not mad at, at, at Paige Van Zandt. She did what she needed to do, got in there and fought, promoted herself, built up her, her brand. And if she's making six figures a, a, a year um, promoting products on Instagram, and shit. I mean, I'm not mad at her for you, it. You know what she did? She basically, we talked about this issue before. Remember when Felice Herrick was complaining that because she was getting passed over? Paige Van Zandt is just the new Felice Herrick. Felice Herrick actually said this in an interview. The reason I could take so much time off of fighting is because I had all these sponsorships, all these web episodes, all these commercials, all these advertisements and sponsorships I did. I didn't have to fight. You got Carla Esparza talking about I'm li- I'm struggling, paying, going check to check. And, pay- and Felice Herrick didn't fight for like almost a year and a half, and she was good. Because she she played the game, and the worst part is all these fighters. It's the same thing when they complain about Conor McGregor. Oh, I'm not a I don't talk trash like him, or I'm not a fake pretty girl like Paige and Felice. They're so phony with their makeup and their thongs. Then why are you calling them out? Why don't you call out an equally unpopular fighter with no sponsorships? Because you want to benefit the same. Oh, I just want to expose her. No, you don't. You don't want to expose her. You want to make money. Stop lying. Just be mm-hmm. honest. They they sit there and they lie to us. Well, she, if she's the worst fighter ever, if she's poorly developed and she's a hype train and you came to the UFC to fight the best, then why are you calling out the hype train? Why aren't you calling out the best fighter? Everybody keeps saying, so-and-so's a fraud. Well, I'm calling him out. So let me get this straight. There's seven fighters ranked ahead of you, and instead of doing that, you're calling out the hype train? Man, you can't expect me to take you seriously. Don't tell me you're a warrior and you're punching down. You said they're trash. Why are you trying to fight trash? Why don't you fight the best fighter? Because they don't come with any attention. They won't get you a title shot because you beat number five, but you beat Paige Van Sant. That might catapult you because she got a name. So they're bitter and they're whining about it, trying to take a moral high ground. And then they're being hypocritical by trying to take advantage of her popularity. It's sickening, to be honest. I'm just calling it what it is. It's sickening and it's hypocritical. And somebody's got to call it out. And since nobody else wants to, I'm going to do it. Yeah, it's definitely been a hell of a uh, situation to kind of watch. Um, I want to kind of, we're going to segue now, and I want to keep a close eye, like I said, we're going to keep a close eye on that antitrust, antitrust lawsuit, and, we're, and I'm probably going to be writing some pieces about that over the weekend once we see some more stuff break out. Um, let's see what's next. Let's talk about uh, this fight from Saturday where we have Weili Zhang versus uh, Jessica Andrade. Uh, first, I want you to talk about this from a stylistic matchup. What do you think about this fight here? I see a lot of people kind of glossing over Zhang and going straight to um, 
Andrade. But I think this fight is going to be more difficult than a lot of people are um, perceiving. Um, first of all, Andrade is a great athlete, physically durable, doesn't hit for power. Everybody thinks she's a power hitter. She is not. She's a hard hitter who breaks you down with attrition, kind of like Cyborg. She's explosive. She's strong. She was strong enough to throw around 135-pound girl, somehow drop two divisions, and then just crush these strawweight girls. Um, the best thing about her previously was that her camp understood who she was as a fighter, understood her physical attributes, and they built a style based around those attributes. The forward pressure, the big slams, the hooks to the body, the volume, that all works because they recognize they've got an exceptional, exceptionally explosive, exceptionally strong, and exceptionally cardio-based and durable fighter. It's kind of like what Carolina Kovacavich's camp did, except they thought that Carolina was with like on Jessica Andrade, and the fact that she doesn't have those tools is what's been getting her beat the fuck up for the past two years. Jessica Andrade's team plays to her strengths, and they add little strategical areas of improvement that allow her to get past the fact that technically she's awful. My concern for this fight is, one, she's facing another girl who's physically durable. Two, she's facing a girl who also fights at pace and there's a high volume. Three, she's facing a girl who actually uses more of the tools because Andrade is pretty straightforward with the body, hooks of the body, big wing, hooks of the head, the big slams, the forward pressure. Her opponent has a little bit more diversity in her footwork offensively. She throws a, a wider array of strikes. And as far as her actual punching technique, she's a little bit cleaner and brings her hands back to defensive position a little bit better than Andrade. And she transitions to strike to, for striking and grappling better than Andrade. The question is, how does she handle fighting an opponent who is, who is possibly stronger, possibly more durable, just as equal cardio base, and has an experience, has a higher level experience facing world-class opposition. That's really the question we have against Andrade. I don't think, technically, I don't think Andrade is as good a fighter, but strategically and based off what she's done and who she's beaten, you can't really compare their level of opposition. The one thing you have to be concerned with is recently Jessica Andrade said, I've changed everything for this camp. You're going to see a whole new, more technical Jessica Andrade. Let me tell you something. You don't become technical overnight. That doesn't happen in a six-week camp. That doesn't happen in a six-month camp. That doesn't happen in two fights. That's something you progressively improve over a period of time. And if Jessica Andrade was making these changes over time, we would have seen some better defense. We haven't seen it. You saw against Rose Nami, his biggest fighter of life. She couldn't avoid a punch to save her life. She couldn't cut the cage off of her, but she was chasing her. She couldn't do anything until Rose got tired and hung on to a submission. She really made minor adjustments, but she didn't really show any real technical acumen that wasn't directly related to her physical pressure and her athleticism. So if she's going to make all these changes and go away from who she is, there's a good chance that if she makes this technical, she gets wiped off the face of the planet. Because it's one thing to be durable when you're fighting your fight. It's another thing to try and be technical and fight at range and faint and do all this other stuff. When you get hit with shots, when you're doing something unfamiliar to you, you don't take the shots as well. That's why Michelle Watterson dropped Paige Van Zandt when she was trying to be technical. And then that's the same... Paige Van Zandt, who went four and a half rounds, getting the hell beat out of her by a very hard-punching Rose Namajunas. Now, how is Rose Namajunas knocking her all over, the, all over the cage but can't really hurt her? And then Michelle Waterson puts her on her ass with one shot? It's because she was fighting the technical fight, and she was out of position, had a poor stance, and wasn't in the position she normally is in to take those kind of shots. So if Andrade really goes all technical and is determined to be technical, 
there's a good chance she loses this fight and she loses it decisively. If she goes back to what she normally does, the combination of her athleticism, her pressure, her body work, puts her in a position to win and defend that belt. But this girl she's facing isn't going to be intimidated, isn't going to be a walkover as far as physical strength and cardio, and has a better skill set than Jessica Andrade. I think this is a this girl is very a very live dog, and I really think she can win this fight. I will not be shocked if she if she wins this fight. Yeah, I definitely think that that's an interesting point there because I see a lot of people picking Andrade to win via knockout, and I'm like, uh, let's have a conversation about that because yeah, I want to. I have I have questions about that. Um, it just doesn't seem like a, a, one thing I always look at when we break down fights is like, has fighter X lost in a way that fighter Y fights? And the way a lot of people are kind of dictating or expecting this fight to end, yeah, you can kind of anticipate Andrade to land big shots, but we haven't seen Wiley Zhang take big shots like that, usually because she's moving and she's giving out her own sauce at the same time. So I find it hard to believe that Jessica Andrade is just going to walk in there and blow the doors off of her. Yeah, my main thing is I want to see Je- I want to see her do certain things. There's certain things that people don't ever do to Jessica Andrade. They never attack her body. If you really notice, people just like they get into these exchanges where they headhunt with her. And here's a girl who rarely gets rocked, who rarely gets dropped, and you're just gonna exchange on the feet with her, going to the head. And plus, she's short, so you're punching down, which makes it it harder for you to get out of the way when she counters you. I like to see somebody attack those legs, kick the. I mean, Jessica uh, Joanna Jenjedrick did it. Kick the legs, kick the body, move your feet a little bit, use a jab, push shots together. Tisha Torres was boxing her up early on before she took her down. There's ways to attack. Even Claudia Gadelia was having success on the feet before she decided to go for this ridiculous wrestling. And I knew I knew Claudia's camp at that point. I told them, do, first of all, don't take that fight. Second of all, do not just rush in for takedowns. You pick your spots with the wrestling. Jab her, move, counter to the body, make her come, counter angle out. It's real simple. And when she was doing that, she was making she was making Andrade look bad. Then she decided to go for these ridiculous takedowns and wore herself out and then p- proceeded to get beat half to death. I want to see somebody with a poise, aggressive approach where they really try to walk her down. Not just getting heavy exchanges, k- kick her to the sh- front kick to the body, kick to the legs, front kick to the knee, jab, long right hand, make her work. Punish the body. See if that cardio really stands up when she's getting when she's her body is getting tested. It's like people just fight the most stupidest fight when they fight her because they're so scared of her getting their hands on them. I'm hoping that in this case, this this girl is strong enough and physical enough where she's going to have the poise and the confidence to take some chances and do some things that Jessica Andrade is not prepared for. Nobody hardly ever touches her to the body. I can't imagine you're prepared for it if you don't. If in like ten fights, it has rarely ever happened. So I'd like to see her do those sort of things. Really make it hard for Jessica to get to the spot she wants to and make her pay for make her pay the price of admission when she gets to those spots. Now, here's the big super huge question to close everything out. Okay, are you ready? Yes. Are you going to wake up at 6 a.m. or whatever the hell that number is to watch this fight? I might have to. I might have to because it, it, this, it, it's it's just an, it's a very interesting matchup. It's one of the few times I can see Andrade with somebody who looks comparably like every time every other fight she's had. You've seen girls with athleticism, but you haven't seen anybody who you think could really kind of, you know, really lock up with her and hold their own. All the girls have been girls she can bully and manhandle or kind of push around. 
So it's been a while since I've seen her against a girl who could really kind of lock up, maybe get up when she takes her down, or maybe she hits her, that girl can come right back with something. So I'm really intrigued to see how not just, uh, I can't say her name, Zane reacts, but how Andrade reacts to it. Because I think for the first time, she's not going to be able to just bully someone. She's going to come forward, and this person's not going give to give ground. And if you, I think if you get Andrade moving backwards, oh, it's all over then. If Andrade gets put on her back foot, it's all over. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in seeing how this main event plays out. I'm not sure if I'm going to be the guy to wake up to watch it. But as I said, I am interested in seeing how this main event plays out. And I hope to um, kind of catch some of, of the action. But that's really all I wanted to talk about this week, man. As I said, we're going to keep things short. We're going to keep things sweet this week. Let everybody know what you're working on um, for MMA ratings and beyond. Uh, as always, I'm usually live tweeting fights. Um, dropping random gems of knowledge or experience I've had talking with certain fighters, certain camps, or just when people ask me to break down certain fights on Twitter, because I get a lot of that. It's easier, it's usually, it's really easier to tweet stuff than it is to write articles. I really got to get away from that. So I start tweeting out article length type answers and series of tweets instead of writing articles. So I got to really get back to sitting down and actually typing articles. I got away from it. So I've just, it's been so hard to really just sit down and make myself do it. True, I definitely understand. Um, this is a big weekend in pro wrestling where um, the newest promotion, AEW, is launching yet another. It's probably its first real big pay-per-view on Saturday, so I will be covering that. I have some other um, professional wrestling stuff to cover as well, such as the Pro Wrestling 500. You'll hear me talk about that on Friday during the podcast. But yeah, man, that's really it. Um, I want to, Like I said, I'm going to be covering the... Uh, the UFC antitrust situation. I might try to cover Polaris this weekend, which is a grappling event, um, but th- that may interfere with my pool party shenanigans that I got planned for Saturday. So I might just can't have that. Can't have that. You can't. You can't. It's the end of this. It's the end of the summer, and we're just gonna do some ratchet shit. I'm just gonna go ahead and put it out there. I might go to jail, or I might be. <laughs> I might be the, the person who jumps off the roof into the pool this year or something like that. So, Raphael, you know, I, mean, Raphael, Raphael I don't need to get, I don't need to, when the uh, next week comes around, I don't need that call, accepting a call from inmate yeah, 1647. Let's get the show going, Shawan. You call from jail, man? Come on. The show, A, the show, the show must go on. B, you got to have some bail money in, 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 on deck. Like, like that's the deal. Every, you know, we, we, I had some money I was going to spend. I'm keeping it safe this weekend just in case. There you go, sir. On MMA ratings, we have our what's all known as our bell money fund, which is a secret pot of money that we have that, you know, sometimes we just got to say we got to get somebody out of jail. And, th- and it might be me this weekend. I- I'm not yeah. even going to front. I'm going to keep Mike on. A, a, I think he's got a fund just in case. So we'll, we'll keep him on watch, too. That's how we do it. But um, all in all, man, thanks again for another great show. We'll be back. Actually, we will not program note. We will not be back next week because I am traveling for uh, work. It may be a solo show, but um, I'll let Schwan know. Maybe we'll be on. It just really kind of depends. It might be a later show on Thursday. Same thing with Friday, but uh, we'll keep you You're going to Europe this You're going to Europe. Where you going? You get the private jet taking you this week? No, not this week. Not next week. I mean, I'm going to Boston for um, a work conference and. Thursday is like the day before the end, uh, the day before the last day. So we'll see how it, it goes down. I'll see what type of energy I have because we'll, we're, we're going from like 7 a.m. to like 8, 9 p.m. So we'll see how it goes. No. Hey, well, be safe on your trip. Be safe this weekend. Be safe on the trip, man. I will try. I can't promise this weekend, but I will at least be safe on the, on the, on the trip next week. All right, man. Thanks as always. Everybody, appreciate the support. And we will see you next week. Oh, excuse me. 
Rafi will probably see you next week. If not, we'll see you the week after. That's right. Have a good night, everyone.